Mac Power Users, episode 526. I don't aspire to anything else. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett and I am joined as always by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hello, Mr. Hackett. Welcome to another feedback episode of the Mac Power Users. They they come up so quickly. They do, but we actually don't do them as frequently as we're supposed to. So I know, go I know. that's the that's the irony of it. Is that yeah. about every th- two or three months we're like, shouldn't we do have done one of those? And we look back in the spreadsheet, like, <laughs> yeah. nope, we haven't done one in a while. Yeah. So here we are. I really like it though. It's fun talking, you know, catching up with all the great listener feedback from the forums and the email. And also it allows us to kind of cover some micro topics that we couldn't give a full show. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, I know you're going to be talking a lot about DevonThink. We finally have an MPU host who is a devoted DevonThink user. I can't wait to hear about that. Wow. You're just really sticking me with it now. Yeah, it's on you, brother. It's it on is. You. Uh, before we get started, though, I do want just to take a moment and congratulate you on being independent now for five years. That's a huge deal. Congratulations. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I, I kind of lost track of it. Mike Hurley's the one who reminded me. He's like, hasn't it been five years for you? I'm like, oh, yeah, it has. It feels like just a few days, but but five years. And uh, I wrote a post about it over at Max Sparky. It, it was interesting to me that, you know, for for a long time, I was thinking I need to, like, make a change in my life. And it's interesting how that is your focus. And then when you find the right place for yourself, the focus immediately becomes, how do I stay here? How do I keep this? And um, that's what the post was about. But uh, I thought since it's been five years, it may be worth just taking a minute to kind of check in from back way back when almost, almost four and a half years ago, episode 272. Ooh. Yeah. At that time I told uh, Katie, all the technology I was using to keep the wheels on. And this was largely for the law practice. And uh, as to the listeners, I don't like to talk about the law practice too much because there's, uh, a few lawyers that listen to our show, but most people aren't lawyers and they don't want to hear all that nonsense. But the, um, but I thought it'd be a good time now to check in a little bit on how the tech has changed uh, for the law practice in these five years. Sure. A couple things like when I when we did episode two seventy two, I talked a lot about how I was using a fancy answering service with an actual human to answer the phone. Right. Um, the the interesting thing is it, those are those can be quite expensive and. I was looking at the fact that I don't really get that many calls because once you become my client, you just get my cell phone number and my clients call my cell phone. And so it really was only there for opposing counsel and cold calls, people wanting to hire me. And I'm super picky about who I let hire me and I don't do that much litigation. So uh, I do more mainly transactional law now. So I just give my cell phone number to opposing counsel too. I know don't write me anyway. Um, the, uh, so I just, I canceled that and I, I was saving, ended up saving like three grand a year by doing that. So I saved some money. And, um, when I did that, I said, okay, how can I, what, what can I do that would actually improve the practice? And one of the things I talked about in that episode is how I did file storage and I had all these fancy automations in place to manage files. And one of the issues I had was, um, just, keeping stuff together. Like a lot of the work I do is transactions. You know, somebody says, I want to buy this company or I want to sell my company, or I want to enter this fancy contract with this fancy company. So for each one of those projects for my clients, I've got a collection of emails and notes 
and um, I've got documents and sometimes uh, task lists that are shared with the client. So I and I had these in all these different buckets, uh, which work great when I'm you know just working for myself. But when I've got people that I'm working with on the other side for the client, it was often hard to pull all that together later. So one of the things I'd discover is I'd write a contract for a client, and then maybe three years later they were having some complication with the contract. And they wanted to go back and look at the original emails and notes. And I had those things, but they were on all these different places. And I got thinking, well, I need some place where I can combine all this. And that's what led me to invest some of my phone savings into a Basecamp account, which Stephen loves. Uh, Basecamp is an interesting product. I, I really respect the company. Um, they've got a podcast called Signal to Noise, I believe. I think that's the name of it. I know that's the name of their blog, and I don't listen to every episode, but I listen to I listen to it frequently, and I just think uh, Jason Hannemeyer Hansen and and the team over there just really kind of have it figured out in terms of how to have a responsible company without making their employees crazy. I find it very inspiring when I listen to them. So I wanted to support them, but I also obviously needed a product that worked for me and. One of the things Basecamp does for me really well is it allows me to put each client project into its own bucket. So you can have your documents and lists and everything all in one place for each client. Exactly. Well, not only that, for each project. So if Steven says, hey, Dave, you know, I want to enter a contract with Microsoft. And then I say, okay, we set up the Steven Microsoft co contract project. And uh, the way they handle email is you just have a magic forwarding email address. And of course, I have a keyboard maestro script that generates those and drops it in. So whenever I send an email, I just blind copy it to that magic address. Whenever someone sends me an email, I forward it to that address. And then I'm, I'm capturing all the emails, all the client notes and stuff. Even though I write them in drafts, it I you know I, I fairly automate those into a base camp note when they're mm -hmm. done. And then I do have, even though I use OmniFocus for my personal tasks, I will put shared task lists in there with that me and the client can see where we can have stuff. So it's just a, and then there's also a document storage mechanism. And none of it is as fast or hazel friendly as the stuff I was doing before, but I found that the stuff I was doing before wasn't really working because I needed to keep everything in its own bucket. And uh, this just worked out really well for me. And I, I did it a couple of years ago. The The mistake I made with it was I tested it with a couple clients that are super geeky and they loved it because it's expensive. It's $1,000 a year to have this product. Right. Uh, but it gives you unlimited clients and unlimited projects. So I, I tested it with a couple of nerdy clients that loved it. So I signed up for it. And then a bunch of my non-nerdy clients just want nothing to do with it. <laughs> You know, it, but the thing I found is that it still works for me, even though the, the clients don't access it or want access to it, I can still keep everything in an individual bucket. And when they need access to it, I can give them to it. I can like limit their access to just certain parts of it. And I found that over the years I've been doing it, increasingly, even clients that were initially against it, once they see the benefit of it, they really like it. So that that is a, a huge change for me since episode 272 and also kind of reflects the change in my practice i'm not doing litigation i'm doing a lot of these things that need a bucket like that a couple other things that have changed is the ipad laptop conundrum remain i now do have a laptop and an ipad and i i still jump between them all the time the ipad for me the problem where it breaks down is on larger transactions where there's lots and lots of documents it just can't keep up mm -hmm. and i've talked about that on the show before um 
online billing still the best for me. It's just amazing to me how much faster I get my billing done than the old firm did. Uh, oh, sure. automa- <laughs> you know, auto- automation rocks. I mean, it's great. It's just so great. I, I, even though I'm using Basecamp, I figured out ways to automate that with some of the online services like Zapier. Um, and I do so much automation on the law practice. I really, maybe someday we'll do a show on it. I don't know. I just feel like a lot of people are going to be super bored if I do that. But the, um, <laughs> it'll be a membership special. Yeah. Well, oh, no, yeah. Man. well what's cool yeah. about, about Basecamp or really any system that has like a secret email address is that does unlock automation possibilities that wouldn't be there otherwise. You know, if it will accept an email, you can do a lot of things with Zapier and other tools to get data in. And I think that's sort of an overlooked thing when it comes to online services. Yeah. Like I use Zapier. And if you, if this is piquing your interest, listen to the automators. Rose and I talk about this stuff a lot, but I use Zapier when I create a new client, it creates an Airtable entry. It creates the base camp setup. It creates the billing system. It does a whole thing with just one kind of step. Because we talk a lot on MPU about automation on the Mac level or on shortcuts, but there's a whole world of online automation out there. And I guess we really probably should get into it on MPU as well. But just in general, automation rocks. I I can't get over how much I'm able to do without having a full-time secretary better and more accurately than my competition. But that being said, I also have got better at working with an assistant. I, I do have someone that helps me. Uh, you know, it's not full time. It's not even really part time, but she does help me with stuff that I don't want to do. And mm-hmm. I'm getting better at sending her that stuff. So um, overall, I feel like I've made a lot of progress in the last five years. I guess we'll see where it all goes. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. Uh, my five year is coming up and we've, we've shared the story before, but you were one of the people who finally pushed me over the edge. And I realized while preparing for today's episode we had that conversation where y'all sort of pushed me into it over the summers in June at WWDC. You had only been independent a couple of months. <laughs> so, yeah. Which is just sort of funny to me in hindsight because – Yeah, why, why did you listen to me? <laughs> for a long time, I was like, oh, yeah, Jason and David have been doing this a long time. It's like, no, they had it. <laughs> yeah, but here we are. And just, again, congratulations. Uh, you deserve all the success that you enjoy. and. Uh, I know that MPU and everything you do is far better off with your now full-time attention. So it's awesome, man. It really is. Yeah. Thanks. I'm, I just couldn't be happier. I mean, at the end of the blog post I wrote, and this is absolutely true. Recently I got asked on one of those online web forums, you know, where they give the security questions. Yeah. They said, you know, what's your dream job? And immediately I'm like, well, I'm my current job, you know, the, the practice of law, the way I do it now, the nerd stuff I do, the way I do it now, that I don't, I don't aspire to anything else. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm perfectly happy. So I, I hope I can keep doing it. And by the way, I didn't write this in the article, but I never fill those questions with the actual answers and you shouldn't either. This is a great use for one password. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll have a teaching moment here. So just generate a random password with one password, drop those in and then save a screenshot to one password. And then you've got, that's the way you answer those questions. But it was interesting to me that like, oh yeah, I, I have my dream job. How lucky am I? Had a little philosophical moment with the security form. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, it was like, a, you know, a little like existential, you know, happiness there. There you go. <laughs> well, we have a bunch of listener questions to get to, but first I thought we could take a break and talk about our first sponsor. 
This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by Kensington, the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase productivity. It's so easy to use, you get access to a bunch more ports and make your sleek MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play, that means there's no drivers or weird software you have to install, and you can just enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and display link video connectors, plus USB 3, USB-C, Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery, all being available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience in high-volume manufacturing of hardware IT products. They put these things through rigorous test cycles. They have really awesome quality control, and it means that their products are tested above industry standards. Kensington sent me one of these docks, and it is amazing how well-built it is. It feels like a brick. Like it just It feels so good. Not that flimsy, cheap stuff we've all had to use in the past. If you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive a docking solution today. It's pretty cool. Head on over to kensington.com Mac right now to check out Kensington. That's K-E-N-S-I-N-G-T-O-N, kensington.com Mac to learn more. Our thanks to Kensington for the support of this show and Relay FM. All right. Uh, we had some questions about the famous OWC enclosure that causes Stephen so much grief because I taped it to my boom arm. Uh, yeah. You and other people. It's, a, it's a, some sort of mind virus in the MPU community. Yeah. Stephen wrote it. He's like, uh, the OWC Mercury, Mercury Elite Pro USB 3.1 Gen 2, which is the one we recommended. He says... Why is that different than a NAS drive or any other enclosure? I thought I'd let you answer this one. Sure, yeah. I think this is a little confusing because the case that we recommend doesn't have a drive in it. You can get a drive in it. I put my own. But this is just like if you went and bought a USB hard drive from Target or Best Buy or, you know, if it's 1996 Circuit City. Just like a regular external drive. It's It needs uh, an external like it needs a computer, it needs some sort of device to tell it what to do. It's just an external drive. The reason I like this one is because it's really fast and it's made of aluminum, so it looks cool. But you you need it to use with a computer, whereas uh, a NAS, which is you know something by Synology, a company like that, those are really standalone sort of appli- computer appliances. They run their own operating system. They connect to your network over Ethernet. You log into them with some sort of web interface. Um, so that's really what a NAS is. And these are just, you know, just really fancy external hard drives. Yeah. And the point Stephen made is that they're fast. You know, the um, the interface speed is super important if you're going to put an SSD in one of these things. Because, you know, if you've got 10 gallons of water, you're trying to put through a quarter-inch pipe, you're going to have a problem. And... uh and this OWC enclosure, to my knowledge, is one of the fastest, if not the fastest, that at least consumers can get their hands on. Yeah, it's it's the fastest that uses USB. There are some Thunderbolt drive enclosures, but you're going to spend way, way, way more money. So I think this USB 3.1 Gen 2, which current Mac support, this is another thing because USB 3 and 3.1 and 3.1 Gen 1 and 3.1 Gen 2, they're all different speeds. And so you need to make sure that you know what speed your Mac supports and then go with the fastest uh, you can do. But 
but really you don't like I went with this because I was using these external drives for actual work. I mean, they were archive drives, but occasionally I would need to open a final cut project that was stored on them or move a lot of big files around. And so for me, it was worth it for me for the expense to make these really fast. You don't need USB 3.1 Gen 2 SSD external hard drives for Time Machine, right? Like just go buy yeah. a spinning hard drive for 50 bucks on Amazon. That's plenty for Time Machine. But if you're using an external USB drive to boot your computer from or to actively work on or maybe to put your photos library on, then investing in something with an SSD and with really fast speed, that will pay off. It's more expensive, but the experience is way better too. Yeah, I think a great example Stephen just mentioned is the photos library. If you've got a small SSD in your computer and you want to have that that speed but put it on an external drive, getting one of these enclosures and buying an SD for SSD for it, you're going to really appreciate that every time you work in your photos library. So I have a, a related problem, and maybe I'll ask Steve. I don't know if Stephen has the answer. I think I've asked you already once. Maybe there is no answer. But I do feel a tinge of guilt about this monstrosity taped to the boom arm of my Mac. Good. The problem is, this is the problem. Okay. I've got the Mac on a boom arm, which I love. I love having the the space under the desk clean. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to hang that drive on the desk. I don't want to look at it under my computer. Because it's on a boom arm, that Elevation Lab shelf thing won't work, right? So I got thinking... If I put the whole thing on the a long cable, I could run it under my desk if I wanted. Okay? Mm-hmm. I cannot find a long cable for USB-C uh, with high speed that will support high speed. I've looked. I'm not sure they exist. I also looked for a, a USB hub. You know, like you have the USB type 1 hubs that, everybody sells or you get a long usb cable and you can run it under your desk and then you can have a whole bunch of extra plugs right i got one right here yeah there's no such thing for USB C that i can find yeah you when you get into USB C, it gets a lot trickier and you do end up with length issues you know i use the 12 south USB C hub the uh the stay go hub is what they call it but even it it comes with a short cable and a long cable. The long cable is not super long. Like it runs basically from my display down under the desk and then back up to the desk. But even it is just using, it's using USB-C, but I believe that it is not the super fast, you know, Gen 2 stuff. And I don't know if it's because that's more expensive or more complicated, but this is a sort of a knock against the USB-C life we all live now because all these ports and cables look the same, but they don't act the same. And yeah. I have run into this issue before trying to help people with their setups. I haven't found a good source for a long, like, Gen 2 cables that would that would really support that full speed. So, I don't know, we may need to go to the forums for this one because I don't have an answer off, off you know, top of my head. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's even possible. Um, and obviously possible for me being something that's also not going to break the bank to buy a single cable but uh if someone can find a solution or knows of one let me know because i i wouldn't mind sticking this thing under the desk but i just you know i spent like a half hour one day on the problem i couldn't find a cable that i could buy so yeah there it remains i guess i could um get some like some sheet metal screws 
and just screw through the, the OWC enclosure to the back of the iMac, would that make you feel better if I did that? <laughs> I, feel na- I feel nauseated. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keyboard conflicts uh, mm-hmm. came up several times. Uh, uh, Dave Wayne talked about it in a recent episode. Mark wrote in, uh, he recommends KeyQ, which I had for years, but I found I just didn't use it that much. KeyQ is an app that if memory serves, you hold down the command key and it gives you a list of commands just like the iOS uh, apps do, like if you have a keyboard attached to your iPad. Mm-hmm. Also, we heard from a listener. Uh, I didn't write his name down. I'm so sorry. Uh, but it was called Shortcut Detective. And it's at irradiatedsoftware.com. Uh, he really liked Shortcut Detective for finding shortcuts he didn't know were out there and conflicts. I sent it to our man in the field, David Wayne. David wrote me back saying it only works kind of with his initial testing. So, mm. <laughs> But he's a very busy guy. I don't know if he's given it a full shot yet, but uh, there's something out there. But I, I, I like David's idea. I think that it really should be built into the operating system where I can push a button and see what all my keyboard shortcuts are. Oh, yeah. I mean, you ran into that issue earlier or I guess maybe last year now where – you know, you had set up something, I think, in Keyboard Maestro, and it was, like, conflicting with the key- another keyboard shortcut. And it, it took you a while to find it, and you're Max Sparky, right? Like, how do yeah. – it is messy, and there's so many third-party utilities that can make keyboard shortcuts. You can customize your own and system preferences. It's really easy to get things sort of wired up wrong, and it would be great if there was a utility to just show you what's going on everywhere. Yeah, I, I was testing a new keyboard master script I wrote recently and accidentally used the space bar as the keyboard shortcut and <laughs> madness ensued. I mean, it took me took me a while to figure out what oh was going boy. on. I felt That's like really it, good. Yeah. It, it really yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is this? Um anyway. Uh we talked about um in the backup episode, this one goes way back. Mm-hmm. Um the um about optical media, you and I both kind of poo-pooed it. Uh, it used to be great, and we were both kind of not super excited about the idea of optical media. I wasn't sure it would last, and I'm like, who does that anymore? And Randall wrote in to explain that it has improved a great deal in the last several years. You can buy 1,000-year life expectancy optical media now. Uh, at first I'm like, really? And I looked it up and sure enough, I can go on Amazon verbatim, a known company makes 1000 year discs for, you can get five of them for $68. So mm. I guess if you want, you know, your, uh, your documents to survive the next apocalypse, you can do that. Sure. Yeah. I, I read a bit some about these two, they're called M discs and I cannot get a straight answer if like the Apple SuperDrive can write to them. Some people say yes. Some people say no. I don't really know. Um, you know, I, I don't think it really changes my thoughts about optical media because disc rot aside, they're still fragile. They're still like, it's pretty easy to scratch them. It's easy to, you know, something bad to happen to them. And I feel like I'm, I'm in pretty good shape with my combination of local drives, offsite drives, and then backblaze. Yeah. No, I, I, I am not changing anything either. When's the last time you used a uh, optical drive on your Mac? I don't even, I honestly don't even know. Like in day-to-day use, it's been years. I could tell you the last time I used uh, a CD was I installed OS nine on an iBook for a video. Uh, but other than like history stuff day-to-day, I haven't used one in a really long time. 
Yeah, we have a super drive that gets passed around with my kids because they occasionally watch movies through it. That's their uh, movie drive. But that I can't remember the last time. I don't think I've ever plugged it into my iMac. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't plugged one into my Mac Pro yet. It's been here for three months now. We talked on the uh, the iTunes episode about the iron grip of iTunes, and listener Adam had kind of a cool thing he did, which I thought was was very clever. Um, there's a service I'm aware of it called Movies Anywhere. We have an account for that. I think it used to be when you bought Disney movies, you got free Movies Anywhere access to them. I don't know if that's true anymore because I don't buy. I haven't bought a DVD in a while, but you would buy the DVD. You get this movies anywhere code and we'd go into movies anywhere online and it would give us the movie into iTunes. And I guess I should still be doing that when you think about it. Cause then you have the physical media and you have it on your iTunes account, but um, we don't buy that many movies anymore. So I just pay in iTunes and then I've got it and I don't have to deal with the rigmarole of installing it and finding the code and all that. But so what he did was he set up a Movies Anywhere account and then connected his purchases through Movies Anywhere. And then he would um, switch accounts for his family and it would combine all of the movies that he had to the, the new family member that got into the account. And you can only do that every six to 12 months. He couldn't remember exactly how often you could do it. So it took him, I think, several years but over time, he had got all the movies that they had bought into each one of the accounts for each one of the family members. I thought it was really clever. Yeah, I've not really explored movies anywhere. We have just basically moved to streaming for almost everything. And yeah. in fact, at some point in the future, I want to talk about like these sort of cable replacement deals like YouTube TV and Hulu Live TV because I think they're really interesting. I've kind of been checking those out in the last couple yeah. of months. So I haven't really ex explored explored this. I think, honestly, when it first came out, it seemed like it was kind of too good to be true. And I thought, oh, that won't last six months. But it's stuck around for a while now. Yeah. And it's got a lot of big players behind it, you know. And so maybe it is here to stay. But I did think this was a very clever way to kind of migrate all of your legacy stuff to this new platform. Agreed. Um, also, a little feedback since that episode. I heard from a guy who knows a guy. You know the thing. Uh, I, I, I speculated on that show that lawyers were the source of the problem with all of this and <laughs> contracts that, you know, they had made these deals and now you can't move your purchases between accounts because of a lot of obligations. Somebody that knows things told me, yeah, you're right. Uh, so I have no idea if this will ever get sorted. And I still think about it since we recorded that episode. We just bought uh, Jojo Rabbit last night. So I just dug myself a little deeper into the hole. And, um, the thing is it all just works for me still anyway. So I, I guess I don't really care that much. You know, I sort of stopped fighting this stuff a long time ago. Maybe I yeah. just, I just gave in. Yeah. Yeah. If I, if I bought a lot of movies, I think I would probably think harder about this problem. Mm -hmm. I think maybe one of the better ways to do it. If you buy a lot of movies is just buy DVDs or, you know, the Blu-ray, Blu I guess it's Blu-ray now. See, yeah. I haven't bought for a while. But the, uh, and then you've got the physical media and usually there's the nerds figure out eventually a way to, for you to make digital copies of that. Not that you're supposed to do that. So I don't recommend it, <laughs> but the, uh, I think probably if you own the physical media, that's probably the most mobile solution for owning that data. Probably so. Um, we had a few more questions in the forums. We got time to cover those. Yeah. 
Yeah, let's 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 blast right. through these. Some some quick ones. Uh, Corn Chip wrote in, David, are you still using dictation and accessibility? The answer is yes. Um, however, um, Dragon still works. If you have Dragon, it still works. I thought it would die when Catalina came out. It has not. So on the machine that I've paid for Dragon on, I'm using Dragon. It's still superior to the uh, accessibility dictation. But on the other machines, the laptop, I use the accessibility dictation. And on the iPad and iPhone, I use them frequently. And I'm pretty happy with them. I, they could obviously be better, but they're so much more, they're so much improved over what we had before on iOS devices. Like it, just the fact that you can have a custom dictionary and there's no timer makes them usable. Whereas before they're not usable. I just recently, I, I was doing something where I didn't have the accessibility button turned on. So I went ahead and used the microphone and just started dictating and I was doing perfectly fine. I looked down and it had stopped dictating like two sentences ago. Cause oh. I forgot about, forgot about the timer man you know so yeah. it just stopped you know so so um yeah i am still using it uh, i know i've heard from some of you that say they think it's terrible I, if you're used to dragon it's not as good as dragon but if you compare it to what we had before it's much better and i really think this is something apple is working on i think we're going to see significant improvement year over year in the uh, voice to speak uh voice to text dictation I think so too. I mean, Apple is really committed to accessibility and for people who just want to use this stuff, it's just a bonus, right? Like it's yeah. Apple's making this with the accessibility community in mind, but I think that they've really made big strides there and I expect that to continue. I don't think they're going to let this, let this technology languish. I think they want to keep their foot on the gas. Somebody wrote and says the discourse forum experiment working and uh, the short answer is yes. Um, we started out on Facebook. I was never a fan of Facebook, but everybody told me that's where we had to put it because that's where all the people are. And what I found out was not only are the Mac Power users there, there's also a bunch of other um, less kind people than the Mac Power users. So our forum was getting routinely hijacked by people I didn't want it to be hijacked by. So uh, when I moved it over, I was told by almost everyone that that was a mistake that I was going to regret it, that you know, nobody would come and blah, blah, blah. In short order, we have more people on the, the Mac Power Users Discourse Forum than we ever had on Facebook. The traffic is massive. I can't get over how many people out in the world are using our forum to get their questions answered. Yeah, it's wild. The problems are far less. I mean, maybe once a month we have to deal with something. I mean, it's crazy how small the problems are. And then um, uh, we're just super happy with it. And uh, I, my only disappointment is I'm not on there enough, but it's hard for me to make as much time as I'd like for everything. But I, I do try and get in there every day or two. And uh, I know Stephen does as well. I think Stephen does better at it than I do, frankly. And uh, we're going to continue to grow that forum. I'm really happy with it. Yeah, I try to stop in several times a week. And it is not just to answer people's questions. I mean, there are things that I have learned, like legitimately learned from other people's questions that oh, I haven't really thought about that or I haven't considered that use case. And so I really enjoyed the community there. And, you know, I would really encourage you if you are listening to join the forums. I don't think you have to, to enjoy the podcast. It's just additive, but it is a, a really cool community of nerds just trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. Uh, another question from Kevin. How do you handle windowing on a Mac? I don't know that we've ever heard from you on this, Stephen. I assume this question 
is looking at like, do you use spaces? Do you use applications like Moom, you know, to like tile windows or anything? So I don't use spaces. I've tried a couple of times over the past few years where, okay, this desktop has Slack and iMessage and Twitter, and this desktop has Logic, and this desktop has Safari. And I ended up just going slowly mad, trying to remember where I was. Uh, the only two spaces I have on my Mac Pro right now, I have desktop, and then I have the music app full screen, one to the right. And I've had that that way forever. So I don't do multiple windows. That just doesn't work with my brain. Uh, okay, so on that part. So for spaces, I'm like you. I have a 27-inch screen. I don't need spaces. Except I use Fantastical in the week view with 14 days. Uh, that's my one extra space. So I can always slide over and see the next two weeks yeah. listed in column view. But that's it. And the, the built-in spaces that the Mac operating system does where you can have two apps on each side of the screen. Mm-hmm. It's garbage. I, mm-hmm. I don't know why they haven't fixed that because like if you minimize a window, it breaks it. It's like, it's not nearly as easy as it is on iOS. And I'll, and that right now everybody's complaining about how hard it is on the iOS. So just think about that. Yeah. On the Mac, Apple just sort of remixes that stuff every few years. You know, all, this whole system is called mission control. Uh, but I, I don't even really ever use that. I very rarely like swipe up to go to a, a window I basically just use command tab to get around between my open applications. As far as applications being in a certain place, there are really cool third-party utilities for the Mac. Moom is one that I just mentioned. Um, that's that's really great. But I don't really use any of that stuff. So I have some general rules, like iMessage is sort of in the bottom right-hand corner. TweetBot is down the left-hand side when it's open. But other than those two things, everything just sort of floats and it gets messy, but that's fine because that's, you know, command tab is really easy to get through things and I can very quickly get to the window that I want and I don't really feel the need for a big system on top of what's already working in macOS. Yeah, I um, I did a video on YouTube about this. We'll put a link in the show notes. The um, what, Because I have two extra monitors the two vertical monitors, the ears on my mm-hmm. iMac, I decided I wanted to get serious about kind of window management for those. And with Keyboard Maestro, I made these cool scripts. And the whole idea for me is the three buttons next to the space bar, control, uh, option, command, you know, right next to each other. And then the arrow keys, because I have a, a, a big size keyboard with the number pad and the arrow keys. So... And this is just kind of intuitive for me now, but if I hold down the left two buttons, control and option, that controls the left screen. And if I hit arrow up with that, then whatever window I'm in takes the top half of that screen. If I hit arrow down, it takes the bottom half of that screen. Uh, I can also do right, or uh, if I go left, it's a full size of that screen, but I never use that. I always just use top or bottom of that. And then I do the same thing, but with the other keys. If I use option and command, the two right keys of that grouping, I can control the top and the bottom of the right screen. Mm, and, then okay. if I, and then if I hold all three down and I go left, then it takes the current window and makes it half of the iMac screen. If I go right, it's the right half of the iMac screen. If I go up, it's 75% of the iMac screen. If I go down, it's 100% of the iMac screen. And... um I know that sounds complicated, but once you get it under your fingers, I make windows dance all the time. And in my head, I've got kind of an order for things. The The browser is always left screen top. So like I have Basecamp there. I have 
Airtable. I have stuff when I'm working on stuff, you know, reference material when I'm working that's on the internet, it's right there. Um, but I can very easily put that on the main screen if I'm working off of it by, you know, all three keys with right or left arrow. The bottom screen on the left is collection of everything else, mainly communication, Slack, email, you know, messages, all that stuff just goes in there. And if I just swipe up with four fingers on the trackpad, then I can pick from whatever one I want out of there. And then the right monitor is always the top half is the calendar in the week view. Even though I have the fantastic L slide over thing, I still want to see my calendar at all times. Sometimes it's in day view there. And the bottom right is always OmniFocus. And then I have the center screen to do whatever I'm actually working on. So I've actually spent a lot of time kind of sorting this out, but it's just a great way to work. And then I combine it with the stream deck where I can push any button on the stream deck and it'll sort them exactly how I want. Like if I'm going to do legal work or if I'm going to work on a field guide, it'll put different apps up for me. You're a madman. You know, it sounds like it as I was talking through that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I shared too much, but the, uh, but it, it's really, like I said, it sounds like more than it is. Once you kind of figure it out and you have it under your fingers, it's there. Like I said, I'll share, I have a free screencast I did on this that, that is on YouTube and you can kind of see it in action and hopefully that'll help you if you're interested in that stuff. Cool. Uh, any more questions from the forums? Oh, uh, are subscriptions a long-term solution? Do you want to talk about that? You want to make everybody mad at us? I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel or think about this. I am not a economic kind of person. I'm not an app developer. All I know is what I hear from developers and then as a user. And of course, yeah. this is a popular topic because a lot of applications, even in the last couple of months, have moved to subscription. And, and you know, I don't want to get into any specifics, but some people are unhappy about some of those changes. I think ultimately, this comes down to if you're playing in Apple's platform, developers really do have limited options to make a living and the app store on the whole. Remember we think about the app store as just like us, right? Like the cool, like tech podcast people who have an iPad pro or, you know, yeah. use an iMac for 10 years, like our people. Right. But we are a tiny percentage a less than a percentage of the app store on the whole. And it's lots of types of people all over the world. And that system drove down upfront purchase price over the years. And Apple, Apple's to blame for that some. The economies, there's lots of factors, again, beyond my pay grade. But that's just the reality we're in, that you can't make money selling an app for $20 anymore. Even though in a little bit, I'm going to talk about an app, an iOS app that costs $20. But it, for the most part, you can't do that if you want to have a broad market and Apple doesn't allow for upgrade pricing. And so the only other option is subscription. And because so many apps and games are free, people, again, the mass of the app store, not just us, people think the software is free. And the reality is it's just not. It's really expensive to build this stuff. And it only becomes increasingly complicated as Apple continues to expand not only what their platforms can do, but the number of their platforms. And that's great, right? Like it's awesome that all this stuff is here. We get to use all these tools, right? This is not a complaint about that, but it, it, there is a reality that to develop for those platforms and to be good at it, it takes a lot of, a lot of, like a lot of, a lot of, a lot of time. 
and a lot of energy and a lot of people. And so developers have had to move to subscription if they want to stay in business. And, you know, at that point, it's all about, is is this app worth this much a year to me? And if it is, that's awesome. And if it's not, that's okay too. And I think all these developers who make these decisions understand that they were going, they will lose part of their user base, but the user base that sticks around, they'll be making money from, and that means that they can continue to develop their software. It's all really complicated, and I definitely don't envy any developer who has to make those decisions. But I think that we, I just, I think my main point is here is the app store and app store economy stuff is way bigger than our corner of the internet. And we do kind of tend to forget about that sometimes. I mean, I have kind of the same advice for um, customers as well as developers. It's just like, if you want to make an app to, to developer, I'd say, if you want to make an app and charge a subscription for it, it better be worth it, you know, because nobody's yeah. going to give you money just for the heck of it. it they're mm-hmm. going to give you money because your app is valuable. And I think, you know, productivity apps are, are my favorite thing. And it needs to be a productivity app that I find useful on a routine basis that I like, if I stopped having it, I, I would be unhappy and you price it in a way that makes me willing to pay that to keep, keep the privilege of having it. So you've got to deliver the goods and to the to customers, I'd say if, if they don't meet that value bargain for you, if they're charging too much or if they're not making it good enough to justify the subscription, you should absolutely cancel that subscription or not subscribe at all. And, um, and then let the market sort it out. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, there may be some apps that charge a high subscription, but they can justify it because they prove the value proposition and others that don't. And I think we're, we're going to see examples of apps that make it and don't with this model. I don't think the the model is really going to go away though, because I think it's really kind of the only way that developers have, uh, given the kind of way the app store works, but but it, it, I, I don't think a user, I think one of the reasons people get upset with subscriptions, they feel like, hey, man, now I have to pay all these subscriptions. And just remember, you don't have to, you know, for each app that goes on a subscription model, there's usually something pretty good that's in competition with it, you know, so totally, you got to just make your own decisions. And, uh, and there, there have been apps that I have subscribed to and apps that I won't. So we all are there. Yeah, buddy. I, I think that's a good place to leave that. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by SetApp from MacPaw. More than 170 powerful apps for your Mac, and you can try it for free for a week with the uh, link in the show notes. I'm so glad SetApp is sponsoring the Mac Power Users. I feel like they sponsor every episode because it seems like we talk about them every episode. Um, I'm a big fan. Uh, SetApp is like Netflix, but for Mac apps. And it's a great way to allow you to discover and use some of your favorite apps and discover a whole bunch of new ones. It's got an app for virtually every task, so you can be more productive. SetApp has a dedicated curation team that only selects the highest quality apps, so you don't have to search for the best tools. They're already in SetApp, and it's such a great value because it packs in more than 170 apps into one. So instead of paying thousands of dollars for separate app licenses, you pay just one flat fee every month for SetApp. And if you go in there, you'll see a couple apps in there that maybe you're already paying for you may find that you're already paying the cost of setup without subscribing to setup. So just sign up for setup. You get the apps you're already buying and a whole bunch more new apps are added regularly and updates are free and all the apps are full featured pro versions. Um, they, there's just so many you can find just recently. My, uh, my mother-in-law needed to download a YouTube video and she was at my house and, 
uh, she wanted me to do it for. I'm like, great, I'll do it. I went up on set app. I downloaded, I think they had like two or three apps on there that can download YouTube videos. I found one, downloaded her video, got it in the MP4 format, installed it on her computer. She thought that her son-in-law was great. Anytime your mother-in-law likes you, it's worth it, right? That's so, a good uh, thing. Yeah, exactly. Head over to setapp.com to try setup free for a week. If you like it, you pay $9.99 a month as long as it's useful to you, just like we were talking about. Make it earn its living, and it will be. Uh, once again, that's setapp.com to see how it fits in with your workflow. Uh, let them know you heard about it from Mac Power Users by using the link in our show notes. That, that helps us out, so please do that. And our thanks to Setup for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about my research journey, if I, we can call it that. Yeah, I know, man. This is exciting. We've been looking forward to this. This has been a, a months-long process. And so in the forums, and I think on a previous feedback show, not sure, uh, I spoke about my need to have some sort of tool to pull together a bunch of resources I've gathered over the years when writing and working on like tech history stuff. And so I've got the YouTube channel. Of course, I've got five full pixels, my new show flashback here on relay FM. We're getting into tech history stuff. And I, I just came to realize that I had PDFs and all sorts of things scattered across Apple notes. I had a ton of stuff in Dropbox. I had some stuff that was just like saved an Insta paper. Like it was just, it was a real mess. And I started off in bear and which is an excellent application, but I just sort of quickly realized that like I, I previously thought the tagging system wasn't what I wanted that I wanted folders and subfolders and you can do all that with tags, but it wasn't the way that I wanted to work. And I ran into some issues with their web clipper, which is pretty good but I had some articles and stuff that it it struggled to clip the way that I wanted to. And so I, I struggled for a little a little while in there. And then I realized, look, there's an app for this. And it's 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 Evernote. And so I said, okay, I know it's not awesome. I know that the company seems to maybe be a little bit of trouble, but I Evernote's a known quantity. I know how it works. It's web clipper is the best out of any of these tools. I said, okay, I'll settle into Evernote. So I signed up for an account again, made some notebooks, made some stacks. And then I, and I was, I paid for it up front. Like, you know, I'm going to pay for a year. And then I very quickly hit the 10 gigabyte upload limit per month. And you can double that with a business account, but then you have to have more than one account like signed up and it was going to get confusing and I very quickly realized that I had just way too much stuff that was going to take me months to get all this into Evernote. And, and you know, when you told me you were going to do Evernote, I knew that you were going to hate it. Yeah. Just just knowing your personality and your aesthetic. But I, I felt like he has to learn this for himself. It, it, is, it is a journey I had to take. And I just got to say, like, if you're out there and you work for Evernote, it's like put your iPhone in dark mode and try to use your app. Like they are bright screens all over the place. When you first load the app or load into a notebook, you get a, a white flash. It's like, what are you doing? Like, I'm in dark mode. And you're blinding me with lightning strikes from the screen. So it quickly fell by the wayside. And so I'm sad again, right? I've like put a bunch of stuff into bear. Thankfully, I left everything in its original place because I was like, I'm going to move everything before I start getting rid of folders on Dropbox. Yeah. 
So, well, Bear's not it. Evernote's not it. I didn't want it in Apple Notes because I use Apple Notes for regular note-taking and like a bunch of other stuff. And I wanted this a separate tool for this. And, and for what you're doing, Apple Notes would be just as inadequate as Bear was. Yeah. And then I realized the answer has been here all along. The answer is DevonThink. And there's a lot to be said about DevonThink. It is a such a full-featured application, and I am just scratching the surface of what it can do. It's kind of like my use of Logic Pro. I edit all my podcasts in Logic. I'm using 4% of what Logic can do. I kind of feel the same way about DevonThink, but it is great at just feeding it just a ton of data and then be able to search that data across a bunch of different folders and subfolders like I want and surfacing what you're looking for. And that's really the problem that I have here. So I've got, well, I can just tell you, let me open it. I have currently 4,180 items in my DevonThink database. And these are PDFs of old magazines, uh, Apple press releases, other reviews people have written, technical documentation. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I've collected these files over the course of like a decade. So it just, there's tons of stuff. And it became quickly apparent to me that, oh, DevonThink answers the, the problem I have of, I have a giant haystack and I need a needle and I don't know where the needle is. And so it's searching across all of these files very quickly. It's categorizing them by the way that I search and the search is really, you know, fantastic. And that was my primary goal. And most of these files are PDFs and not many of them had OCR data, you know, in the file. Some of them I'd run through PDF pin or something like that to give them to OCR them and Evernote will OCR. But again, I had so much data. It was going to take me like six months to get all this into Evernote and Devin think OCR stuff amazingly quickly. And it OCR'd some things like really bad scans of old stuff really well. Like I've been really impressed with the OCR technology in DevonThink. This is DevonThink 3 from the Mac. And I, I do have some some issues with DevonThink. It's not a perfect tool, but my primary objective was I have a lot of PDFs. I need to search inside of them. I want to categorize them the way I want to, but I want to search across that categorization structure. And I want, you know, to sync and be fast. And DevonThink 3 has been the answer. And I, I, I'm really happy with it. It's a lot of stuff, a lot of things. Yeah. Well, you know, Devin think was kind of like the end all be all for so long. And then when the iPhone and iPad showed up, a lot of people started to look at it as kind of the grandfather of this stuff. Like it was, mm -hmm. but the company has put a lot of resources into their mobile apps. And I know you had, you had said that they're going to even put more this coming year, but it's, you know, it's a viable solution. You can absolutely access that data now mm -hmm. on an iPad or an iPhone. And for me, that's kind of a big deal. If I'm going to put all my data into one of these apps, I want to be able to get access to it on yeah. a mobile platform. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that when I talk about syncing, because the, the way that it does that is very, very clever. It does feel like a little bit of a grandfather. Devin Think 3 is pretty new, but like it looks like an old Mac app, right? Like it's covered in buttons and toolbars and you can customize everything. I love that. Not everybody will. Uh, let, let me sort of explain how I've organized it and I'll walk through the syncing and then we'll get to the mobile app. So I've got 
currently five sort of big buckets. I have events, which are like keynote notes and that sort of thing. Hardware, software, publications, and published. Inside of those, there's you know various groupings. Most of this is Apple related, but a lot of it's not. And so there, there may be a folder in software about Next or about the B company, which made these wacky PowerPC computers in the 90s. Yeah. And so I can I can customize that, but everything falls into some of those buckets. Published and publications, they are different. Publications are things that other people wrote. So I have all of Syracuse's OS 10 reviews in there. I have a PDF of every copy of Mac user magazine in there. Published are things that I have published because I have the same problem. I've been writing about this stuff for so long. There have been times where I've sat down to start an article to realize halfway through that I wrote this article in 2007. It's like, oh, well, I can't rewrite it. And so I need, I wanted a way to bring in all the stuff I've written and covered over my career. And so that is what published is. It's it's stuff that I've written. And it's helpful to know the ground you've covered. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, this would take a long time to build up an Evernote with Devin Think. Like I just poured a bunch of PDFs into it and it lit up this Mac Pro importing them and doing the OCR. Uh, currently, it's about 70 gigabytes of data. And the way that this works is you have your database file. The way that I did it to keep the database a little bit smaller is that each of those big buckets is its own database. Okay. And they all sit on your local disk. So for me, they are in, you know, uh, user folder, you know, so Steven slash, uh, what is it actually called? I want to get this right. Uh, slash databases. So it's right alongside desktop documents downloads. Okay. So they're just sitting here. And what's cool, so many people worry about apps like this because, oh, my data is in a proprietary format. I'm never going to see it again. Well, here's what's what's cool about that is that it's actually not. If I right-click and hit show package contents in Finder and I go to files, I just get a list of all of my PDFs. And they are all just local on my disk. So say that something were to happen to DevonThink, I have all my data in the format that I uploaded it. Now, the organization will be a little funny and it'll take me a little while to sort that back out. But I have all my files as I imported them. And that was important to me as far as long-term reliability. And it also retains the file names, right? I mean, it doesn't like hash the name. So it's suddenly... Right. An unreadable file name. Yeah, absolutely. So it is um, It is really cool from that perspective that it's respecting the data that I give it. And, that, you know, that was important to me. Now, with respect to having it in five separate databases, mm-hmm. can you search across all five or do you have to yes. load one at a time? Yep. You can You can search. It's really cool. So, like, right now I'm uh, I'm just in Devon. think I'm in the inbox. And say I start typing uh, the word Macintosh – it gives me all databases, but then I can click through and say, actually, I just want to search within this database or just this folder in this database. And so DevonThink puts all of the databases as like siblings. There's not one that is more important than the other. There's not a default one necessarily. It is just searching across everything, which is really cool. Nice. It sounds like you've uh, you found a pretty good solution then. Yeah. Like, like I said, I've been pretty happy. Is all your data in there now, the 4,000 documents, or you still have more to upload? I've got more to go. I sort of hit a, a decent stopping point, and I haven't been back into it this week. This is mostly – most of my week last week when I had downtime was just like 
dragging things into Devon Think, but I still have a little bit more to go. I have I have not done anything as far as importing from five twelve pixels. I need to work out how I want to do that. Most of those articles have so I don't show tags on the front end of five twelve pixels or categories, but I have all of those in WordPress. And so what I may end up doing is creating an RSS feed that looks at those categories and then having Devon Think pull the content of the RSS feed because Devon Think can do all sorts of things. You're not just dragging folders in from Finder. And that's what I've done so far. It has a web clipper, which is okay. It falls down on multi-page articles, like in a big way. But other than that, it's been pretty good. And I'm if I'm importing from the web, I make it a PDF. Because if you're like, I want this stuff to last forever, PDF's the way to go. But I may end up automating some of the 512 pixels scraping. I feel like that database is going to be your equivalent of like Smeagol's ring. You're going to like, gonna yeah. want to hold it right know. yeah my precious <laughs> you're precious i and i almost hold just waiting until we talk about something on mac power users and i hear your keyboard for a few seconds and you say well then according to page 72 of the lisa manual that's right <laughs> I, I have uh, i have a what did i name it i have a let's look at hardware a pre-mac apple folder and so it's like lisa and the apple you know one two and three and that sort of stuff do you have the user manual for the Apple camera in there? Let's see. Uh, that would probably be other Apple. Let's, well, let's just search for Quick Take. Yep, I have Quick Take 100, 150, 150 for Windows, <laughs> Quick Take 200, getting started, Quick Take 200 user manual, all sorts of stuff. So, so listeners, if you have like old Apple user manuals or something, yeah, hit me up. Send them, send them to Stephen yeah. so he can he can add it to his to his precious. Yeah. So I want to talk about the mobile app because, so I should say, when I'm writing and working on these projects, it's pretty much 100% done on the Mac because I have a bunch of files open, a bunch of browsers open, I'm watching a video or two. It's just not conducive to the to the iPad necessarily, just for the yeah. way that I want to work. But I do want this accessible to me on my mobile devices. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, you have 70 gigs of stuff. How are you getting that to your iPad and iPhone? And I will say this about Devin Think. I think their onboarding could be better. I think that there's a lot you have to kind of figure out on your own. And they do have a really good uh, discourse form. It looks just like ours because it runs on the same software. So I will have a link to that as well because I think that their forms are really helpful and good. But the way that you set up a sync is, okay, I have my databases, again, locally on my solid state drive in my home folder. These aren't saved directly to Dropbox or iCloud. You basically set up DevonThink, the app, to copy that data to Dropbox or iCloud. So I use Dropbox, and then I have its copy, you know, selective synced away so I'm not double dipping on my storage space. But that means that all this is available to my iOS devices. And what's really cool is that the mobile app will sync the index data down to your, your iOS devices. And so it doesn't have the 70 gigs worth of stuff but it has the index for all that stuff. So I can still search for quick take on my iPhone. I have none of those files locally, but DevonThink knows about them. And then it can tell me, hey, these are the 10 PDFs you have about the quick take. Do you want to download any of them? Do you want to look at any of them? And I think that's sort of the best of both worlds where I can search and I can see what I have, but I haven't filled up half my iPhone with like PDFs about old computer stuff. Like I'm happy to do that on my Mac pro and my laptop. I don't want all that on my phone. 
And it means that I can have access to this stuff and I can even add stuff to Devin Think from the mobile app, but it's sort of a lesser version of the whole like situation. And I think that's pretty solid. Yeah, I think that's the right solution. I mean, just like the Photos app doesn't download all the photos to your device. It's yeah. the same thing. You don't want to exactly. load up your device and uh, right. and a Devon Think library or database. I know we've got listeners that are using it in education and research where yeah. theirs make yours look like a real tiny, precious database. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's great. So it's I think it's very smart the way they've done it. Yeah, I will say that the mobile app and so Devin Think has said publicly, so I'm not I haven't talked to them behind the scenes at all. They have said publicly that Devin Think to Go, which is the mobile app, is their focus for 2020. And it honestly it needs to be. There's no dark mode. It's kind of broken in places. My biggest frustration with it is with notes. So in Devin Think for the Mac, you can drag in PDFs, you can drag in web archives, basically any file type it'll take. But you can also create your own notes in Devon. They can use it as an as a note app. And I have a lot of notes in my history collection. Just you know, like the events thing is all just notes I've taken at events over the years. Now I do that in Markdown, and Markdown documents on the desktop version and the mobile version sync perfectly. But if you want to use rich text or something else, not all of those formats work on mobile. And so you could be in a situation where you've created a note on the Mac and it's read only on the iPhone or iPad. And that's, that's not good. And there's no way to like, Oh, make this markdown or make this plain text so I can edit it everywhere. They don't really tell you what the limitations are. It just is sort of a broken experience. And so I hope that they make that better. I just use markdown for that. So I'm fine, but it is something to be aware of, you know, where if you're doing rich text or something like that, or Devin, even has its own like spreadsheet format. Those won't necessarily work the way you want them to, on your iPad or iPhone. So that's a little bit of something to be aware of, but um, I'm hopeful that they will make Devin think to go a lot more powerful, especially like it's extension. Like I said, you can add things, but it's very basic. I, I would like them to basically rip off the, the desktop web clipper, put it on, yeah. on iOS, make it better on the desktop as well. But they've got a little ways to go on the mobile side, but it's, it's totally usable for my needs. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's an app that, hung in the balance for a year or two where you thought, is this going to evolve as the Apple platforms have, or is it not? And I think now it's pretty clear it is evolving. And just even the way they've implemented the, uh, the ability to sync the, the search database, the Mm -hmm. way they do, it's absolutely usable. I mean, you may not want to do your heavy work on your iPad, but you can absolutely sit on the couch and read the quick take manual. Sure. Who doesn't want to do that? Yeah. I don't know who wouldn't. Everybody wants to. What was the megapixel count on that, or or what were they up to megapixels by then? Yeah, I think we're we're sub megapixel. Yeah, <laughs> long time ago, man. I just want to mention pricing real quick. This is an expensive application. So on the desktop, it's ninety nine dollars for the standard, one ninety nine for Pro, which is what I'm. I haven't purchased this yet. I'm still. In, they have a very generous trial period. I'm still in it. I will pay the one ninety nine because I want the OCR fanciness. And there's a server version for $4.99 that just, that's really if you're working with a team and like you want a web version of it and it does lots of stuff. Uh, the $1.99 will meet my needs. So that's what I will spring for. And it's, it's well worth it for me because I've looked for an application like this for a really long time. 
The mobile app is $14.99 with an in-app purchase of $7.99 to unlock additional features, including a really cool thing where, again, you can download files on demand, but you can tell the app, hey, only keep the most recently 200 downloaded files, and after that, start purging them so I don't fill up my iPad. It has a lot of cool stuff around that, which is neat. So yeah, Devin Think, who would have guessed? Uh, you know what? I I think it makes sense. Uh, we've had Gabe Weatherhead on the show in the past, who's a big Devin Think pro user. Yeah. And uh, he uh, he said, you know, he mirrors you. He really loves the way it works. And the, uh, the other thing about, uh, I've heard from so many people that say, if you're going to get it, get the pro version because of that OCR. Everyone yep. says the OCR is just killer on this app. And now you're making me think I should be using it for something. So that's <laughs> you great. Know, it, it, it can import off your email. Like it can do so many things. I think that's why it's sort of intimidating. Like it's an intimidating app to get used to, I think. But yeah, for me, I had a really clear use case and, you know, it, it I'm not, you know, sequencing DNA in here, but it is a research tool and, and I needed that. So it fits my needs really well. And I, I'm honestly really happy with it. And I'm going to pay him the 199 and I expect it to be on the dock of my Max for a long time to come. Yeah, I feel like you're at the end of the journey here. You I found think so. The I feel like I've arrived in the promised land. All right. Uh, if you're a Dev and Think user, let us know in the forums. I'd love to hear how other listeners are using Dev and Think. I think this may be fodder for another uh, show in the future. Yeah, I think so too. This episode is made possible by Indeed. If you have been in the hiring process or you're getting ready to start, you might have a few questions like, uh, where are you going to get good applications to choose from? How do you even figure out how to narrow down things like education and experience? And how will you know that you've made the right hire? I've done a lot of hiring in my career. These are hard questions, but Indeed is here to help. There are millions of great candidates that use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in just minutes and use screener questions to help you quickly create your short list of applications. Plus, you can add a skills test to your job post so you can be confident in your applicant's abilities. Their library of more than 50 skill tests range from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and the confidence that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today at indeed.com slash podcast and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. That's indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions, exclusions apply, and this offer is valid through March 31st, 2020. Our thanks to Indeed for the support of this show and Relay FM. Hey, Steven, remember when we did an hour and a half on notifications? I do remember that. <laughs> we still didn't cover it all. I know. <laughs> I I swore we talked about this, but I guess we didn't. Um, so we, we had some, some feedback, particularly around do not disturb while driving, which is a really like awesome feature. It showed up in iOS 11. And I thought maybe we could kind of just talk through it real quick and explain what it does and talk about our experience with it. So uh, the idea is if your car is in motion and you're driving and someone texts you, it sends them a little auto responder that says, Steven's driving right now. He can't talk to you. Mm -hmm. It makes your iPhone stay silent and the screen stays dark, which is really cool. So it's not even distracting you. 
Yeah. Like so much about Do Not Disturb, it's really customizable. So you can go in there too and you can say, hey, auto reply just to favorites or to no one. So if you don't want the auto reply on, you just want your phone to basically be in Do Not Disturb mode, you can do that. So you're not, you know, tipping off to somebody that you're driving. Yeah. It will still deliver emergency alerts, timers, and alarms. So if you have that alarm to remind you to go pick up the kids, it will still go off, which is important if you have to pick up your kids. So it doesn't completely shut your phone down, but it makes it a lot safer to deal with. And if you connect via Bluetooth, you know, car calls will come in as usual, and you can use the buttons in your car to take the call. So a lot of people's cars you know, have that integration now. Yeah. If you use Apple Maps to navigate, your phone will still show lock screen navigation. So, you know, you may have your phone in a holder, you know, like a mount or in a cup holder or something. You can still look for the maps data. And if you're a passenger and you try to use the iPhone, uh, you must tell it, hey, I'm not driving uh, to turn it off, which is also like a little guilty button. If you want to bypass it when you are driving, you have to lie yeah. to your phone. So maybe that would yeah. be a little reminder that you shouldn't <laughs> be picking up your phone in the car. Yeah, and it's different ways it can detect. You can have it, you can tell it to detect, I'm, tell it I'm driving when I connect you to my car's Bluetooth or when the motion represents a car travel or you can just manually turn it off or on. Some people do that just as a distraction-free mode. They'll just turn it on, do not disturb while driving even though they're actually sitting home doing work. Not that I've ever done that. Right, yeah, do not disturb while typing. Um, I ran into an issue with this when it first came out of I had an automatic mode and so it's just figuring out like motion detection and if the network so like your phone knows what cell phone tower you connected to and that changes as you go yeah. and it turns on the feature and I ran into it on bike rides sure. where I would be riding my bike and I wouldn't know that my phone was in do not disturb and then one day someone was like why didn't you text me back I was like well I was wearing my Apple watch I would have known but like, oh everything's in do not disturb because I, I broke whatever that speed barrier was on my bike and so yeah Going too fast. I know. I got to slow down. So they, you can do that. Um, you can have it activate with CarPlay. So if you're like me and you have CarPlay, you can just tell it to look for that. So it's gotten better as far as uh, figuring out when to turn on and when not to turn on. And uh, and of course, there is that manual setting. Um, so you can kind of figure out how you want to customize it. And like so many other settings, it's part of the iCloud family stuff we spoke about a few weeks ago that if you have kids' devices enrolled in your iCloud family, you can set this to be um, enabled on their devices. So if you have a 16-year-old, she's starting to drive, you can make sure that her her phone will do this and she can't get around it with the parental stuff. So that's that's pretty great as well. And like, like folks, just like, go turn this on. Like... This is this is a no brainer to have enabled. Yeah, I I because I have CarPlay and the charging cable is in the um you know the thing under your elbow you know you've got the little center console thing. My phone goes in there and the lid gets closed on it, so I never actually see my phone when I'm driving. But if you were going to put your phone on like a window mount, this is absolutely should be done. And and you know who cares, right? I mean, I I think people will definitely respect that message. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a good friend of mine who's probably listening to this. He uses it and it says, hey, you know, so-and-so I'm driving right now. You know, I'll see this when I'm done. And I like it because, you know, sometimes I'll text him trying to catch him as he's leaving work. And 
It's like, oh, well, you know, I know I need to call him if I, if I want to, you know, chat with him for a few minutes. But you also know that I'm just not being ignored, right? It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and and it means that everyone's being safe because it is hugely irresponsible to have your phone in your hand when you're driving. And so it, it really is a good feature and one that I'm glad Apple added and one that honestly has gotten better over time. Like some of this customization wasn't here in the beginning and I'm glad that they've they've made it more robust as time has gone, gone on. So it's definitely something that, you know, when I've got a family member or somebody setting up an iPhone, I always show it to them. Like, Hey, you should, you should check this out. You should turn this on. And most people totally get it. And in my experience, people I've, I've shown it to turn it on. Yeah. I've, I've got so, uh, you know, into this that like when I call clients and I can tell they're in a car, I just say, just call me when yeah. you get where you're going because the conversations are not idle when I'm talking to a client right. and, and I don't want the I don't want them to be focused on three things at once. Just look at the road; it's fine. While we're on the subject of CarPlay, I know that you installed one in your truck. How's that going? It's going really well, and I really like the changes they made to CarPlay in iOS 13 with that new split home screen. So you have maps on one side, you have media controls all next to it. I like that sort of side by side deal. Agreed. So much better. Yeah. And yeah, so I mean, I use it. Uh, every time I get in the truck, my wife's got, we bought her a new minivan this summer and it had CarPlay from the factory, which is way better than the aftermarket CarPlay system. I put in the screen is way more responsive, way brighter. It makes mine kind of look sad, but I, so I have my phone set up to be the same in both cars and now she has it in her car or my truck if she drives it. So we are all in a CarPlay in the Hackett household and I don't want to own a car without it. Uh, seriously, like I, it is something that would be my requirement. Next time I shop for a vehicle. Yeah. I, so I've had mine for several years now. And like you, I couldn't imagine not having it. It's just so useful. And the voice commands, you know, I give Siri dictation a hard time sometimes, but the voice commands in a car work perfectly fine. I get to play whatever music I want. I can, you know, do the limited things I do with the phone. My favorite command is get directions home. You know, often I'm like in Los Angeles or somewhere where, I know once I get on the freeway how to get home, but just getting those first couple miles is always a little iffy for me. And you just say, get directions home or get directions to the office. And it gets me, gets me rolling. Uh, a couple power tips. One is you can have it do the directions without audio directions. Like it doesn't talk to you. It just displays the directions and shows you the estimates. Uh, I do this the vast majority of the time, you know, because uh, like when I'm going places, I still want to know what my ETA is, you know, how many miles do I need to go up the 405 before I get off? And uh, with Los Angeles traffic, it also gives me pretty good traffic estimates, you know, if, as, as traffic shows up. If it suddenly starts blasting a bunch of alternative routes at me, I know that there's something's happened up ahead on the road and I can pay attention to that. So that's power tip number one. Power tip number two is go into the settings app and look at the CarPlay settings if you have CarPlay. I think a lot of people don't realize you can adjust those icons. You can't do it in the car. You can do it in the settings app. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander. Save time typing and boost your productivity with Text Expander. With Text Expander, your snippets can be simple like your phone number or more complex like contract clauses or customizable long forms with fill-in fields that automatically calculate dates. Text Expander works everywhere you type 
without special plugins. Use it in email, word processors, spreadsheets, web apps, and services, and more. Businesses like yours use Text Expander every day to manage and share snippets with their employees. That's one of the cool tricks. You get Text Expander for your company. You write the snippets so all of your employees answer with your best words. Um, Text Expander hosts interesting webinars each month. Just this last month in February, I did a Text Expander webinar where we did a shootout. We were sharing our favorite snippets and we got more complicated as we went through the seminar. There was like a thousand people signed up for it. It was really fun. Uh, they've got power tools for customer support professionals with Help Scout in March and Text Expander beginner, advanced, and Teams webinars. So just go to TextExpander.com, sign up for a webinar if you're interested in the app. There's also some great screencasts. I made a bunch of them for them a few years ago that show you how the app works. Text Expander is available for Mac OS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And show listeners get 20% off their first year. That's right, get 20% off. Just go to TextExpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Make sure you let them know you heard about it here on the Mac Power Users. Thank you, Text Expander, for your support of the Mac Power Users. So, Stephen, what are you playing with these days? Uh, I got a couple things for you. Um, one, I so I've really been trying to speed up the production of my YouTube videos. They take a long time and... It makes very little income. So it's a hobby. I kind of do it because I enjoy it. But if I could take some frustration and time out of it, I would make more of them. And so one thing that I have, I have played with it a little bit. I haven't used it in a video yet is using a, uh, a prompter. And so where you have the script written and basically you're reading it to camera and like every YouTube YouTuber that people watch big YouTubers, everyone uses them. So it's, it's, I felt weird about it that it wasn't as genuine, but the reality is if I can write something out fully and still deliver it the way that I want to, then I don't feel like this is cheating. So I picked up a refurbished uh, iPad mini. And so all this advice is, I should say came from Quinn Nelson, my uh, co-host on flashback. He has a YouTube channel called snazzy labs. I basically just texted him and said, Hey, tell me what to buy. And he sent me, he sent me some links. So I have the, what is this thing called? It is the one take only pad prompter. And so you put the iPad in it. He recommended the iPad mini because the text would be narrower. So you won't see your eyes move. You put that in there and basically the reflection of it is in front of the lens. So you're looking dead into the camera and it goes on a tripod or, you know, on a, on a rig and you put the iPad in there and then the app is called prompt smart. And he said, there's a lot of different ones and all of them are kind of bad, but this one is cool because it uses voice recognition to recognize where you are in the script and attempt to auto scroll it for you, which is pretty cool. And so again, I've just been tinkering with this. I haven't done a video with it yet. I will follow up uh, first time I use it in a video to let everyone knows how it goes, but I'm excited about being able to speed up the process of my, you know, a roll talking to camera, because usually what happens is I do it four or five times. And then usually the last take is the one that ends up in the video. And that still may be true, but I want to find ways to, to speed this up and make it a little less frustrating. So I, I was willing to Spend a little money and and see how this goes. Just four or five times—that's actually pretty good. <laughs> I do talk for a living. It is different yeah. in front of a camera, 
But uh, I got to say too, like the iPad mini is adorable, but super tiny. And I don't want to use it for anything but this. Okay. It's nice. It's nice at the bedside table. I will yeah, say. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the other thing for me is a new markdown scratch pad, I guess is the, cl- is the, the best way to say it. It's called Tot, yeah. T-O-T by Icon Factory. It is a free Mac app and a $20 iOS app. And it syncs with iCloud. And all it is, it's this little window on your Mac. And you have seven buttons across the top of it. They're all differently colored. So you have like yellow, orange, green, blue, pink, whatever. And you can just type into them. And it syncs across iCloud. So it's on your other Macs and your iOS devices in the same colors, right? So for instance, a little behind the scenes, I take notes while we record of edit points. So when the show is being edited, it still gets a full listen, but anything I, I want to make sure is caught, I just make a little note of like, okay, at this timestamp, you know, we restarted something or, or something like that. And I have been doing that in ByWord and like saving a markdown document and then copying and pasting them into the Google Doc at the end. And now this week, I've just done it in taught. I just have it off to the side of my window, really narrow. And I really kind of love it as just like a little sticky zap sort of thing. Um, but it does mark down so you can preview it and it syncs everywhere. Um, I just really have liked it. It came out a couple of weeks ago and I'm a big fan. No, it is a, it's a great app. I, I tried it out too. There's just something to be said for having a place that you can immediately jump into and write. And on the Mac, I think the menu bar, that's the power move with the Tot app. Uh, you put it in the menu bar. So you just click on the menu bar and you can have seven scratch pads to write on at any yep. time. And you know, like someone calls you and you just want to write a few things. Maybe someone just gives you a phone number or, you know, you can get more advanced if you want. I, uh, I've been trying it out. I'll tell you drafts is kind of more my jam to tell you the truth uh, because drafts, you can do so much more with the text when it's done. Um, but if you just want a simple thing where you can write text in, you should go for it. And the, the model is interesting. It's free on the Mac, but it's $20 on iOS. So if you want on your iPhone or iPad, it's, it's not cheap, but you can get it for free on the Mac where I would argue it's probably one of the more, almost more useful on the Mac because uh-huh. that menu bar quick writing thing is something that I think everybody who owns a Mac needs. I, I kind of wish that the menu bar app or that it actually was a menu bar app because all the menu bar does is make, bring it to the front. Yeah. And I wish kind of that it was, it was in the menu bar. So it was always in the same place. Um, or at least sticky. You could like pull it to the menu bar. And yeah. Cause then it would just kind of yeah. be hidden until I need it. So I'm using yeah. it with the doc icon now, which is delightful. It actually changed the doc icon changes the color, depending on like what document you're in and taught out of the seven. So that's pretty sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, anything the Icon Factory does is going to look great and work great, too. I mean, uh, those are some of the smartest people making apps. So it, it's a real high quality app. Uh, it does have some limited sharing, like if it, it's the traditional sharing button. So if you write something in Tot and you hit the sharing button, you can create an email, create a text message. So you can do some basic stuff with it. But and drafts, uh, you know, well, drafts has the advantage of many years of development on top of it. Totally. All right, uh, so I did something crazy this month, Stephen. I uh, and it's all John Voorhees' fault when he oh, came on the I show. I like this already. Yeah, he talked about he had this craft keyboard, mm-hmm. and the um, so I 
I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to try one and see how it goes. And so I ordered the Logitech Craft Keyboard, and I did the unthinkable. I installed the Logitech software on my Mac. I'm always hesitant to do those hard, the hardware yeah. like software stuff. I don't, if I'd go back and listen to that show, you could hear me asking John about the software because I knew at the time I'm like, huh, that sounds kind of like fun. And uh, it's it's a great keyboard. It, it's it's also very low travel. It feels very similar to the Apple extended keyboard. Uh, the difference is there's little divots in the keys, which I don't really feel strongly about either way. I, I know some people that couldn't use tell me they couldn't use a keyboard because of the divots. Some people that say the divots are what make it work for them. I can't tell. It's fine. You know, um, the thing that I really love about this keyboard, um, it's got a little more travel to the keys. That's nice. It's still quiet. But the thing that really, really killed it for me is the Bluetooth radios. It has three different Bluetooth radios in it. And they're right above the uh, insert home um, page up buttons. So what I've done is I, you know, because I always have my iPad out next to my Mac. So I have uh, button one is the Mac, button two is the iPad, button three is the iPhone. And occasionally something happens on my iPad where I want to respond with it. And I just hit the button and I start typing and the typing shows up on my iPad. It's just so great. And I use it multiple times a day, switching the radio on this keyboard. It's also backlit, which is nice. It has a volume knob on it where you can turn the volume up and down and you can kind of program it per app to be honest i i find i don't use that that much i know there's some more programmability stuff with it i want to look into seeing if i can use that that volume knob as a scroll wheel in um ScreenFlow. i think that'd be cool uh so i'm that's kind of on my list of things battery life is definitely worse than with the apple keyboard mm. I, I find i have to plug it in every couple of weeks uh, but, you know, it's got a backlight. So what do you expect? And it involves installing Logitech software, which I wasn't super excited about. But my computer, I've been doing it about a month now. Computer hasn't blown up. Everything seems to be working okay. I didn't think I'd give up on my Apple extended keyboard, but I, I really like this. Hey, Logitech makes good stuff. And I really am curious of what else that little volume knob can do. Because if you could make it be a scroll technique like a scroll input that could be really interesting in things like logic or final cut too well i've got uh, the outline for the photos field guide is massive and i'm now starting recording okay and i'm going to be getting to editing soon and i it's on my list of things before i start heavy editing is to figure out if i can turn that wheel into something so i will let you know cool and because i am who i am after i had this for a couple weeks i'm like well i did put the dongle into my computer and I did install the Logitech software. So is there anything else that Logitech makes <laughs> that I should try? <laughs> so I bought a, for the first time in like five years, an MX master two S mouse. I have a mouse now. Okay. After being only trackpad plus mouse, I mean, I said trackpad plus keyboard. Mm -hmm. I decided to give a mouse a try and I, uh, I really like it. So I, I've moved the trackpad to the left side. I bought that one with the intention of returning it in a week. I said, I'm just going to try it. I know I'm going to hate it. But mm -hmm. then I found out, you know what? A super accurate cursor comes in handy once in a while. Sure. And which which mouse was this? This is the big one with like the landing pad for your thumb. Yeah, the MX Master 3. Yeah. Okay. And it's got scroll wheels on the side and scroll wheel on the top. Uh, my, mice have come a long way since the last time I used one. This is definitely superior to the Apple mouse, at least for the way I use mice. And um, 
It's great. Uh, the The worst thing about it, and and you're the one who was talking to me about this, is after I used it for a couple of days, I had all these little like mouse droppings on my desk. You know, the yeah, little black nibbin things. Mm-hmm. That get, and I, I like my desk to be clean. And I was looking, I'm like, this is terrible. And I was going to send it back because of that. And you told me, Dave, you got to go and get a mouse pad. And I'm yep. like, are you kidding me? A mouse pad? It's true. So. So I did. I ordered a mouse pad. I have a circular black one, and it's that's, fine, I guess. That's what I use. Yeah, I use the Logitech mouse. I use the Performance MX, which has been discontinued for like years, and I have the one on my desk, and I have two on the shelf because I really like them, and I want to use them as long as possible. Yeah. I also have uh, found the trackpad on the left side is not a problem at all. I use it just as frequently as I did for all the track patty stuff I do with my left hand. Mm-hmm. I thought I wouldn't, for some reason I thought my left hand wasn't, wasn't like coordinated enough to do that, but I use it all the time and there's a ton of trackpad gestures. I use, I use better touch tools. So all that stuff works just as easily with my left hand as it does with my right. So cool. Overall, it's a, uh, it's been a good move for me. I, yeah, I didn't think this was going to happen, but I, uh, I'm loving it. Well, welcome to the two input or three input device world. I'm the same way, trackpad, keyboard, mouse, and I, I absolutely love it. I don't want to go back. Yeah. Well, I, I now I have as many input devices as I have monitors. There so you go. I, I guess it works. <laughs> All right. Well, as usual, we ran long, but that was a fun episode. It was fun. All right. Uh, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. If you want to get involved with those forums we were talking about, you can find those at talk dot macpowerusers.com we'd love to see you there thank you to our sponsors kensington setup indeed and smile and we'll see you next week <laughs>